0: The views and opinions expressed by the following program are those of the hosts, guests, and callers and are not necessarily those of this station or Webster Rocky Ministries, its management or other hosts or underwriting sponsors. Programs presented by KWRHLP are for educational and entertainment purposes only.
1: Well, greetings to you today, listeners in listener land. This is Arnold Stricker with Ellie Wharton, and we're glad you joined us today. In Tunes, a two-hour weekly broadcast, which focuses and reflects on issues that impact and connects our community in the greater St. Louis area. Our topics include the arts, crime, education, employment, faith, finance, food, history, housing, humor, and justice. We have a very interesting guest today. We're very honored to have him on today. We're going to have Cameron McWhorter. He's a staff reporter for The Wall Street Journal. He's based in Atlanta and covers politics, economics, breaking news, and other subjects, graduated summa cum laude from Hamilton College, where he majored in history, earned a master's degree from Columbia University's Graduate School of Journalism, and prior to joining the Journal in 2010, he worked for other news organizations like the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, the Detroit News, and various other cities reporting as, as well as he was in Bosnia, Iraq, Costa Rica, been awarded the Thomas J. Watson Fellowship for Research and a Neiman Fellowship at Harvard. He's the author of the book we're going to talk to him about today, Red Summer, the Summer of 1919, and the Awakening of Black America, which also is a narrative history of America's deadliest episode of race riots and lynchings. Cameron, welcome to In Tune today.
0: Uh, thanks. thanks for having me on, Arnold. Well,
2: Thank you know, you. I, I, I was tired just listening to all the things that he's done. <laughs> what, a, what a series of accomplishments there, Cameron. Well,
0: okay. Just that just means I lived a long time. That's all.
1: That's all <laughs> well, I, you know. I, before we get started on the book, I had a question because on your bio you said you live in Decatur, Georgia, with your wife, two children, two dogs, two rabbits, a cat, and two beehives. Now, why not two cats?
0: um that's a good question but actually there's three beehives now because one of them split
1: oh okay
0: but um yeah i well we never wanted to get any of these pets uh or at least it wasn't my plan when i first got married but we just have sort of accumulated them i don't know there was no there's no logic to
1: it i, I saw uh, two we love there. them
0: all now but they're just it's non-stop it's a zoo basically
1: now i i'm extremely pleased you wanted to be on the show today we have previously talked about the East St. Louis race riots, which We're 102 years old this summer, and we've talked about those actually a couple times on the show. We have also mentioned about Red Summer. We have not delved into the depth I know that you did in your book, and your book is really the first narrative history that accumulates information about that time and those particular incidents. Why did you write the book?
0: Uh, Well, I was, uh, you know, I'm a reporter, so I lived in different cities in America, and every city that I lived in, after a while, if you study the history of where, you, where you're living, you find that there was a race riot. And so that, that, that was bothersome to me. I also was in Bosnia, uh, where people had started to kill each other, even though everyone looked the same. So people started to kill each other over the suffix of their name uh, and their religious beliefs, which maybe they weren't even following anymore. Uh, and that seemed shocking. I spent some time in Africa. Where people were killing each other over their ethnic divisions, and it just became something that was um, plaguing me. Like, how could that happen? How could it? How could society devolve to where you start just bashing people or shooting somebody because you just because of the way they look or you know how they speak? So, um, when I was on that fellowship at Harvard, I started to look into the history of race riots in American history. And if you start doing that pretty quickly, you find that the red summer was the worst of it. And um, so I thought, why does not I'll just go read a book about that. And there wasn't one. So I I felt that I needed to write a book that really captured uh, what was going on that summer. Um, As you pointed out, there are are race riots before and after. I mean, 1917 in East St. Louis was a, a terrible incident. But in the breadth of... Of, I mean, the entire country was consumed by these, uh, these events in, in 1919. So, it, uh, so that's why I wrote the book.
1: Now, one of the things that we do on the show, one of the main thrusts of the show, is to fill in some of these gaps in the historical narrative that have not been either explained, expounded on, or even mentioned. I don't ever recall in my years of growing up in history— ever reading or hearing anything about this. Now, it might have been a brief paragraph, it could have been a couple sentences, but this was a big, major deal in our country. And You're
0: absolutely right, yeah. Some yeah. people
1: may not know about the Red Summer. Give us an explanation of what the Red Summer is in totality, and then we can kind of dig into it a little bit.
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess I would start with uh, just talking about 1919. It was right after World War One, And I think most people today would think, well, that was just a, uh, that was, that was a time of great triumph, and the Americans had just helped to make the world safe for democracy, and they had just defeated the Germans, and uh, there must have been a lot of parades, and then we were just about to head into the Jazz Age, so everything was great. But in fact, that wasn't the case. Uh, 1919 was a very, very nerve-wracking year for everyone, uh, for a host of reasons, including um, influenza was still sweeping around the world, killing millions of people. Uh, there were a massive amount of strikes in the country, as, as uh, unions tried to organize and were met with a lot of uh, resistance from factory owners. There was a lot of—the um, Bolsheviks had taken over Russia. Anarchists were sweeping, uh, uh, you know, claiming they were going to overthrow the United States government and other governments, and, and leaving bombs on doorsteps of politicians. There was uh, great anxiety over the high cost of living, which your prices were rising dramatically. Jobs were tough to get because a lot of veterans were coming home. So it really was a period of great tension. And uh, I found a political cartoon from the time where it just showed the globe uh, sitting in bed, biting his nails while all these concerns floated above his head. So it wasn't, uh, much like today, (laughs) it was a nerve wracking time in American history. That and, was what
2: I was going to say. Is that it? it almost yeah. sounds like you were describing life today. Now, <laughs> and oh, and now. then back in nineteen nineteen. Okay, the, right? No, it, it was.
0: It was. It's, uh, it was creepy. Uh, some of the, uh, some of the anxiety I was reading about in nineteen nineteen. I'm like, oh, I, I can relate to that. But the so within all that craziness, three things were happening for African Americans that year that were actually pretty good. But because they occurred in all this. Um, Uncertainty. It led to a lot of. Um, it, it led to anti-black uh, flash. You know, they were, became flashpoints for anti-black violence. So one thing that was really good for African Americans that year, or during that period, was the Great Migration. St. Louis is a great example of that. But I mean, the, the Great Migration, which was already underway before World War One, during World War One, it just becomes a flood because the northern cities can't get you know the factories can't get workers from you know immigrants from europe because there's no immigration because of the war so they turned south and they went to um african americans to bring the uh, bring them up in, in large large numbers and that's um that had a different that also had a uh advantage for the factory owners because a lot of the unions at the were um, discriminatory they wouldn't allow african americans to be members so they were so african americans were inherently strike breakers and so it was you know advantageous for the factory people to uh, owners to have them but when african americans came north things were better they were away from jim crow they are, they they, they had a decent wage it wasn't great but it it was a better wage than the, what they were making they could build communities in major cities where they developed neighborhoods, uh, where they had doctors, theater, you know, they could, they could build a community, which they did in places like Chicago. And so that was advantageous. The second thing that was good that year was um, sharecroppers in the South, which were always, always the downtrodden class in American history, actually did pretty well that year uh, because cotton prices were through the roof world the demand uh, the world demand for textiles was enormous so sharecroppers who were always got ripped off when they went to the the cotton gin to be weighed to have their cotton weighed they still made money that year so they were able to buy cars they were buying more land they were buying clothes and this is all good but if you're in a small town a southern town and you know African Americans are driving around in new cars that's going to set off um, a lot of tension, which it did. And then lastly, and maybe the most visible, uh, African-Americans had fought in World War I. They went over by the tens of thousands to France. Most of them worked in logistics, but some of them were actually on the front lines and, and uh, did very well and very heroic, fought very heroically. And were treated really well by the French people. The French people loved... The, uh, the, anybody who was coming to help them fight the Germans, and they treated the African Americans well, and the African Americans were told the soldiers were told repeatedly, "You're fighting for democracy. You're fighting to make the world safe for democracy." Then they are shipped home in their uniforms, and as soon as they get back to the United States, they're they're back in, in the, you know they're back in the in the problems that they left, and they're told you know I had numerous instances in the book where there would be these, 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 these. You know, soldiers would be walking in a small town, in their small hometown, in their uniform, because that's what they were. That's all they had. Right. Uh, or they were allowed to wear them for the, you know, about 90 days after they came home, in the hopes that people would greet them uh, with, with joy. And they were spit on, or they were insulted. Um, who are these African Americans? Who are these blacks? Who are these Negroes thinking they're above their station? You know, there was an example I have in the book of a man who writes, I believe, to the crisis, which was the Peace magazine. And he lived in Arkansas, and he is mistreated when he comes home in his uniform after he fought in France. So he goes up to St. Louis, and he writes, and he moves there, and he writes, I, I felt safer in the trenches than I did in Arkansas. So mm. uh, there was an instance where uh, African Americans soldiers were coming home after serving in France, and they're on the railroad car, and they're in a berth sleeping in a railroad car, but as soon as they cross the Mason-Dixon line, several white men in the car complain and say they need to be moved to the colored car. And several other white men get up and complain and say, well, wait a minute, these guys just fought for us, fought for our country. They should be able to sleep here. And a a big uh, debate erupts, a big fight erupts over this. I mean, this kind of thing was happening all the time. So all these... All these things were, were, were generally positive for African Americans. They were very proud that, for example, that they had fought in World War I, and there was great pride in the African American community. Uh, but um, they also didn't want to, you know, they were told they were fighting for democracy, and then they have to, suddenly they're living in Jim Crow again. So W.E. Du Bois, who was a famous uh, African American intellectual who was writing for the crisis and worked for the NAACP, he wrote a famous, very short essay, which if anybody's in front of a computer should read, but it's called, We Return Fighting. And it wasn't, and he made it clear, like, we're not returning, you know, African-American soldiers should return, shouldn't return from the fighting, they re- should return fighting to, to improve their, their station and, and, and to fight for their rights so that they're equal citizens in the United States.
1: You know, that reminds me of um, the, the poem that has been quoted by Charles McKay. Uh, Claude McKay, excuse me, uh, yeah. who wrote and published this in, in The Liberator. He was part of the Harlem Renaissance, a uh, Jamaican, and really did a lot of writing. But it, it's the poem, if, if We Must Die. Let me do that really quickly. If we must die, let it not be like hogs hunted and penned in an inglorious spot, while round us bark the mad and hungry dogs, making their mock at our accursed lot. If we must die, oh, let us nobly die, so that our precious blood may not be shed in vain. Then even the monsters we defy shall be constrained to honor us, though dead. O oh, kinsmen, we must meet the common foe, though far outnumbered, let us show us brave, and for their thousand blows deal one death blow. What though before us lies the open grave, like men will face the murderous, cowardly pack, pressed to the wall, dying, but fighting back. You know, I can't imagine people coming back from the war, having endured, you know, being shot at, being wounded, some being maimed, killed, being treated respectfully in a foreign country, fighting for democracy as it was proposed, and really proclaimed, and the whole war bond thing for World War One and what President Woodrow Wilson was doing in his campaign to get the country behind it, and then these guys come back, and... It's, it's back to the same old thing.
2: You know, my father experienced well, I, that as well. Sorry, go on. You know, being in the military yep. in, you know, like in early Korean War time. And he told me the same thing. And he was in the Navy. And he was saying the exact same thing, you know, like they were in a car, a train car. And then as soon as it switched into, you know, um, white or Korean prisoners, they were put in the cattle car. And the wow. prisoners were then allowed to ride in the seats. So, I mean, that kind of thing, you know, it's just like when we read the, when we talked about the Green Book. And, you know, I'm of that age where all of these types of things that we talk about have happened either directly to me or someone within my family. So I can relate to that. Well,
0: yeah. Well, there, and, 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 and to be clear, like, there were times it was, it was, uh, there was, uh, great pride with African American soldiers at the time and in some areas. So, for example, the Hellfighters, they're famous, right? That, uh, that fought in France. They, Come back to New York City and march up uh, the island uh, to a giant parade, and are and are cheered by everybody. So there was, uh, and and you know, you, let's use the anecdote I just mentioned, where you know these white southern men stand up and say these guys have to go to the black car, but there were other white men who stood up and said, wait a minute, these guys just fought for us; they shouldn't have to do that. So there was uh, friction among all the races about these issues, and it was. Um, it really uh but yeah i mean it was very clear to i wanted to go into a little bit into the claude mckay poem you just read Mm -hmm. because that really captures to me the whole mood of the entire year so uh there were he was a railroad porter at the time he was a railroad porter in in 1919 and was so terrified because as he traveled from city to city there was no television there was no radio there was only newspapers and gossip those were the two main ways people learn things and as you know gossip can be inaccurate and i'll as a journalist i'll admit sometimes newspapers can be inaccurate and they would they would be reading these scary headlines about you know there's a riot just erupted here a riot just erupted there and so he they would um they started running when the doors would open the railroad cars they would run to their hotel and sort of hole up there he started carrying a gun he was very afraid And one day, in this panicky mood, he goes into the bathroom of a railroad car, and he writes out that sonnet that you just read.
1: And I just wanted to give you an idea of the major race riots and lynchings of the Red Summer. This happened from April to November of 1919. So we're talking about—and he starts in his book in Carswell Grove, Georgia. But we were all the way from San Francisco— Bisbee, Arizona, Longview, Texas, Omaha, Nebraska. Omaha was a big one. Elaine, Arkansas, another big one. Chicago, another big one. Washington, D.C., another big one. New London, Connecticut, all the way down to Vicksburg, Mississippi. There were one, two, three, seven in Georgia incidents. And these are just known incidents that have been actually documented. El Dorado, Arkansas. Lake City, Florida. Knoxville, Tennessee, which was another big one. Corbin, Kentucky. There were mainly in the south, but what's interesting, I thought, was in the west coast, you know, with California and Arizona. There were some have been some issues up in Omaha, Nebraska for some time. New London, Connecticut. So this is just not some isolated thing to the south. It was something that relates to... The entire country and a little indicative of okay. people's thoughts and people people's process of similar to what we had talked about several weeks ago related to uh, when we talked to uh, Katrina Thompson Moore about her book ring shout wheel about so Cameron you're back with us.
0: Yes, I apologize. I don't know what happened
1: there. No, no, no no worries. I was just going into, uh, while we were reconnecting with you, the extent of the Red Summer, and as like in the very first page of your book, where you lay out the map and was discussing some of the cities and states, and you wouldn't think something happening in San Francisco, uh, you know, we know about Omaha, we know about Elaine, Arkansas— we know about Washington, D.C. Right. and Chicago, but some of these other uh, smaller ones and the ones that you actually start the the book off, which we'll get to in a minute because I want to go back to what you were going to say about the the uh, sonnet from Carswell Grove. So we we had actually prompted several of this uh, previously with a book um, from Ring, Shout, Wheel About, Katrina Thompson Moore wrote, and it was essentially how the minstrelness comes out of the South and how African Americans are are coming over and how dance and music is portrayed and given to the rest of Western civilization and how blacks are portrayed, that they're happy and that they dance and that they love music. And this was all, uh, you know, prop- propaganda that was given to the North that— as I was reading your book, I could see how many Northerners were still captivated by this, oh, you know, when they were slaves, they were happy, their masters treated them well, you know, this, this whole uh, nonsense that was going on that is really, my words, whitewashed the entire incident and the whole understanding of uh, black history.
0: Well, yeah, yeah, and you also have to take into account that during that time, you had uh, a whole Groups had been immigrant groups had been pouring into the United States from various parts of the world, all of them trying to quickly establish themselves as quote, quote white unquote right mm-hmm. They wanted to quickly rise in, into the up the ladder and be perceived as white whatever that actually means. So they were um, so in Chicago you had Irish who were competing directly with African Americans for jobs. They're some of the first gangs that start attacking blacks as they're trying to get home from the factories when the riot erupts. There, they are gangs in Chicago that are operating that have you know you know, and I know this from police records, but you know a Jewish kid, a Greek kid, uh, two Irish guys, and a German. You know, I mean it was a real mix, and they were all quote white, so they were asserting themselves, and who who do they assert themselves against? Uh, the African Americans that there that who are being forced to live in a in a, at that point a, a sliver of uh, the South Side of Chicago.
1: You see this. What I'm going to say. I'm going to quote the the phrase. The new Negro, uh, as you mentioned, like blacks were gaining wealth. There was a middle class black group that was growing. They were owning property. They were being successful farmers, and purchasing cars, and there was this little resistance and pushback and probably a, I, I think you described in your book as like a jealousy or a, well, well that shouldn't be, which kind of is an attitude of, that doesn't meet my stereotype of how you should be.
2: And also it points out that there was a sense of lack in people's lives because, you know, when you understand there's a sense of abundance, you know, when the crop is going good, everybody eats. Right. Right. But when you get to the drought and everybody has a sense of lack, then people start to hoard, and that was kind of like in the time where the America when America was really flourishing, people still had a very insecure sense of security. There wasn't enough to go around.
0: Well, and there was this, you know, as I described earlier, this whole this whole panicky age we, the, that people were in, and in it was also, I mean, we, there's also the sta- there's the standard racism that everyone, you know, the sort of simplistic racism of uh, I'm white, you're black, I don't like you. but there And that was sort of like the Ku Klux Klan, you know, you need to be below me um, attitude. But there was another kind of racism that was evolving that was sort of this pseudoscientific racism at the time, in which they, you know, intellectuals like Madison Grant, and I'm using the term intellectual <laughs> very loosely, mm-hmm. uh, and another guy named Lothrop Stoddard, started to propose these ideas of... Um, that the world was a giant um, Darwinian battle among the races, and that white civilization equals white white dominance, and that whites were under siege. So whites, you know, the, the, and they would do these huge color-coded maps in these books, which were not obscure. These were very popular books in multiple printings with major presses. And, and they would go give lecture ser- series around the country in which they're... Describing this, um, you know, this Darwinian battle among these amoeba maps of, you know, here's where the Asiatics live, here's where the Africans live, here's where the, the whites are dom, you know, the Aryan whites
1: are dominant. And they saw this, um, you know, they were looking at population changes. Hey Cameron, we're going to pick that up after the break, okay? Oh. We've, sure, yeah. we've got to take a break here. This is Arnold Stricker with Ellie Wharton of InTune. You're listening to KWRHLP 92.9 FM, your community radio station in Webster Road, Missouri. Welcome back to Intune. Tune. This is Arnold Stricker with Ellie Wharton. We've been talking to Cameron McWhorter, who covers regional politics and news for the Wall Street Journal's Atlanta Bureau. And we're talking about his book, Red Summer, the Summer of 1919, and Awakening of Black America, which is a narrative history of America's deadliest episode of race riots and lynching. And before the break, Cameron, we were talking about the Darwinian intellectualism, quote unquote, that many people thought that we need to kind of separate races and put them in some kind of hierarchical order.
0: Yeah, well, and that's a, and they they were really, um, they believed that the Aryan race, that this was really, I mean, these ideas had been around before, but they really started to, to gel, certainly in America at that, around 1918, 1919, 1920, and it was this, and simultaneous with the rise of the second Ku Klux Klan at this time, um, And you started to see these organizations uh, promote this, but also books were, you know, there were a lot of books coming out. And then just people just generally started to feel this, white people started to have this fear that they were losing civilization, that uh, that African-Americans were having more babies. There were a lot of reports about that, about how they're having, they had a higher birth rate, lots of um, stuff that we would dismiss as ridiculous today. They were really afraid of. So it was just this general panicky, it, it added to the violence that erupted that, that summer because people were terrified that
1: their world was coming apart. Now, one of the things you do in again, again much like today. So. I was going to say because
2: yeah. now we're looking at the Hispanics <laughs> and thinking, "Oh, look at how many babies they have!" And oh, if we keep up, right, this is right. going to be a brown country. And you know, how can we let this happen and make America something again?
1: Well, <laughs> my know? my last question I have, you probably know what it's going to be, and I'm not going to mention it right now. But um, one of the the things I was intrigued about how you wrote your book because it it, I started reading it and it's just like you can't put it down folks and you have to get the book it's a 2011 uh, it's been written in 2011 and I was like holy smokes this should be a primer for everybody to read to get a grasp on some of the situations we're dealing with today
2: what's the name of the book again Arnold
1: it is called Red Summer, The Summer of 1919, and The Awakening of Black America. We're talking about that because we're 100 years now past this, and we still haven't learned some of the lessons. We still haven't read the history. And frankly, Cameron, I I really applaud you on this because you lay it out very clearly. It's the story about Carswell Grove and how you start the book really grabs people in because you can't help but be involved in situations like everybody goes through you're driving down the street you're going to a church function you're minding your own business right. you're successful and all of a sudden boom there's a lynching or lynchings and and then now churches are burned right and well, and, well, and
2: those are things you, were all related to church too remember that a lot of times lynchings occurred right after church service you know so they'd make it part or, of the or if they
0: were, if a mob was coming what, what are they going to target you're going to target the church uh, because that's where the African American community would gather, right? So it was an obvious target. Um, it was it was a community center point for for uh, black people at that time. But but you're um, you know you you, you have uh, really brought home the key issue here, which is what what can we how how, to, how we all live in this, and you guys are in St. Louis, the St. Louis area. So Ferguson is is still an issue, but. Uh, that, that you guys know intimately uh, and the, and the the aftermath of all of that but here is here's the um, here 's what was happening in nineteen nineteen and here 's what we have to wrestle with today is that you have racial tension that exists, and then the slightest flashpoint sets it off right, and everyone goes to their corners and then everyone 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 goes at it, and we don't have thanks, thankfully, to, um, you know, some people have said to me, well, it's just the same as it was in 1919. I sort of uh, flinch at that, because in the research for my book, uh, I really came to have this great admiration for these amazing Americans, people like James Walden Johnson and Du Bois and others, who really, Ida B. Wells, who really uh, risked their lives and, you know, just worked exhaustively to make America better, which I think they did. Um, it, it wasn't an easy task, and I'm not implying that everything's done by any means, but it, they made America better. So we're in a better place, but these tensions still exist. So you can have an incident where, you know, if someone's pulled over by a police officer, it could potentially become a disaster. And in 1919, you had situations where uh, in Washington, D.C., rumors were flying around in, and, and making it into print by um, the media that that um, white women were being attacked by black men, even though there were no, no arrests made in any of these uh, assertions. And two black men are walking down the street uh, one day, and they jostled a woman with an umbrella coming the other way, who was a white woman. We don't know exactly what happened, but I don't know if she bumped into them or they bumped into her or whatever, but words were exchanged. Pretty minor incident, but somehow uh, that got translated in the rumor mill to, did you hear about those two black guys just raped a white woman? And a lot of sailors and soldiers who were milling around Washington waiting to be decommissioned after the war immediately took that as a signal to start rioting, and that led to the riot there. There was a riot in Charleston, South Carolina uh, that year, which was instigated because a couple of sailors, white sailors, were looking to buy some alcohol, which was illegal at the time. And they gave $5 to an African-American to go get him some booze. And he said, sure thing. And he never came back. Not an unusual event that's happened probably since Mesopotamia. But that became uh, a reason, a justification for starting a giant riot. And on and on I mean, and you know uh, you guys probably know the Chicago riot, but that just started when it was a boiling hot day and some um, teenage some black teenagers went to swim at an area near a de facto white beach. They were out on a raft and they the raft drifted into the white into the water off the white beach Beach, again, a de facto white beach. It wasn't legally segregated. And a guy started throwing rocks at them, and one of the boys drowned. So, and that sparked this massive riot in Chicago.
1: And when so we're talking these little, about these riots, we're talking about people yeah. getting pulled out of houses, out of cars, off of streetcars, beaten, lynched, burned, uh, businesses burned, entire homes and areas burned. And people that, you know, died as a result of lynchings or murders or the the number of people that were displaced that were made homeless is just kind of incredulous when you look back and see how people behaved.
2: Well, I mean, you could even take and look at the Watts riots. Um, You know, I was able to I was living out in California and went down to that area probably 10 years after the riots. And the place still looked like the riot had just occurred and people were still living around burnt out buildings, you know, boarded up businesses. Um, It was such a depressing thing because it does take a long time for communities to uh, to kind of redevelop themselves. Now, I think here in Ferguson, there were enough people who said, you know, we're not going to let this define us. The people in Ferguson said that. And I met a lot yeah, of white people okay. that lived in Ferguson. That To be honest with you, I didn't know white people lived in Ferguson until I started meeting white people that lived in Ferguson. I used
1: to live in Ferguson.
2: Did you? I didn't yes. know that. But they, and they I'm all a white person. It. You are? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Now he tells you me. You thought
1: I was a brother with another mother. A brother
2: <laughs> with another mother.
1: <laughs> 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 and, and you may not know this. Uh, we was It was recently announced, $80 million economic development push into Ferguson just announced yesterday, I believe. Which kind of comes back well, you to... Up,
0: you got, but that brings up a great point that I wanted to uh, uh, drive home here, which is, um, uh, if we went out right now into the street and started walking and talking to people and, and interviewing them and say, hey, what's what's a race riot? Most people are going to say, oh, well that was, what about that thing in Ferguson or maybe Charlottesville? Or, you know, they're going to have... Uh, some some people might think back to uh, Los Angeles. You know, that's that's in their mind of that's what a riot, a, a race riot is. But if you, you know, in my research, if you study the breadth of American history, there's been a major race riot in at least one, if not multiple, in every decade since the republic was founded, and even before the, the United States was created hmm. in the colonies. And those riots, if you added up, added them all up the overwhelming majority of them were anti-black mobs attacking individuals or communities. Like, that's the overwhelming—but most people don't see that. That was another reason that I wanted to write this book, was that people should see that our notion of a riot, which I think is—it's is, not— um it's not black kids breaking into shoe stores in Los Angeles in American history. The majority of it, it's it's white mobs coming for black people or black neighborhoods in mass. In mass, yeah,
1: yeah, just not one or two. It's it's like a thousand, right, a hundred, and, and basically
2: supported by law enforcement or law enforcement turns a enforcement blind eye, looking the other way. Yes, way. exactly. Which,
1: which leads me well, to
0: you know, I mean, to be fair to law enforcement, I mean, it depended on the situation. So, nineteen nineteen. Uh, there were, these were all segregated departments, were we kidding? But in the South, in some instances, particularly the lynching, yeah, the the local political officials were absolutely participants in all of this and, and coordinated to some extent, Uh, certainly in Mississippi and some of the other places that I write about. But if you get to Chicago or Washington, it really is a matter of they were just overwhelmed and the, and you can utterly fault the local politicians the mayors and the district commissioners in washington because they were they didn't want to look bad they didn't want to take action quickly so they didn't want to call for federal help or and they they over and over again the riots that were shut down quickly where people you know less harm was done were where people acted quickly and admitted that they couldn't handle it and in other instances um they just let stuff. As soon as you, if you don't, if you don't quash a riot quickly, it's out of control, and that's certainly what happened in Chicago. But you, but you're right. I mean, in the South, there were there were politicians who tried to stop it. They they had a very difficult time and an unsuccessful time. I I I mentioned one, the Omaha riot uh... mayor smith uh... stands up uh... before a crowd of estimated four thousand white angry people trying to uh... get a man from a courthouse that they're destroying and he says oh, we're not going to hand this man over we're gonna have a, a trial we're gonna have, you know we're gonna have a formal trial he's was accused of assaulting a white woman uh, and, and you're not going to get him over my dead body and the crowd says great and they knock him down and try to hang him and he's only saved at the last minute because someone comes in and pulls them off a lamppost. But he, he, would, he, he, he was trying to stop the mob, but had no... And then the, the few police who were in the building trying to stop them couldn't. You yeah. know, they were, they were, the building's being burned, and they're being shot at. And firemen came to try to put up the fire. They cut up the fire hoses. I mean, the mob was out of control.
2: And it, and it really points out, to it's just maybe a few people that begin to incite the riot... And then other people just want to get in there and do bad. Because when you start to talk about attacking the fire department, cutting up the hoses, I mean, those have nothing to do with the initial furor that people felt. This was just now a chance for people to do bad things under the guise of... Yeah,
0: they destroyed, they destroyed county records. I mean, to this day, in Omaha, you can only get a certain... In Douglas County, it's only, some records were destroyed. And they're going, you know, and... Um, yeah, it, became, it becomes a a license to just attack. Attack. That's right. And uh, and that was certainly what was happening. In, but it, but in other places, like in Elaine, Arkansas, which I guess you guys have talked about before. But I mean, that was that could only be described as a as a as a massacre. That was a, that was a coordinated massacre with the local white population armed and also um, troops that had been sent in. And, and, and you have this into the
1: this red scare coming into the red summer where individuals were thinking that communism and the Bolsheviks were, were pushing blacks to revolt and to that's, that's the reason that all this was going on. Why, why there was this uh, uprising, quote unquote, and which was far from the truth because, you know, and I I thought you, you really laid out well about um, the difference between uh, Booker T Washington, and where um, he was going, and then there was a more militant. Uh, or, excuse me. There, there was a. Um, I'm trying to get my get my name straight here. Frederick Douglass. They were taking a a nonviolent, and then there was a more what I would call violent or aggressive push, and it, it kind of led me to think, well, those are like two veins that continued for another 70 years, which, you know, D- Dr. Martin Luther King, and then we have Malcolm X, which, which we still have a nonviolent, we have more of a violent push or a more aggressive push f- coming out of the black community at the time, and that's really kind of well, still pervasive. Well,
0: I guess I would, um, I would say that, that really the issue uh, was self-defense, like there was right. like, there people arguing, if we're getting shot at, let's shoot back. And and there are speeches that James Baldwin Johnson, who I think every American should read about ad nauseum, and there should be statues to him. But he his 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 message was considered radical by some, uh, by certainly by some white politicians. But his message was pretty clear. And but there's speeches. You know, we're Americans. You don't have to like us, but we get the same rights as you do. Mm -hmm. And. And there's a speech he delivers in Boston that year in which he, in one sentence, he says, you know, I'm not advocating violence, but if we're getting shot at, we should shoot back. And, you know, that's Malcolm X. And then later on, he's saying, you know, we have to awaken the moral conscience of the country, and it's very much um, Martin Luther King. And so the issues were being laid out at that time. That came to fruition in the '60s and uh, the '50s and the '60s, but but you know you have there was a very very young and very uh, ambitious, J. Edgar Hoover who was working for the Attorney General at that time, and he starts to put together the, you know he's just beginning his career in 1919, and he starts to put together these, um, these reports about sedition, and so you talked about the Red Scare he's talking about the red scare and he and he merges it with african american radical like african american efforts to obtain equality are radical he sort of merges them all in his mind in these reports he sent it to congress and you can really see that you know this leads to his lifelong obsession with that that black li- you know black activism black political activism equals radical um some kind of radical threat to the United States. And we and see that
2: again, we yeah. see that again today with the, the four women in Congress, you know, that they are, they are now, they have a label, the squad, you know, again, four black women, the squad, and one of them, you know, being very vocal, one of them being an immigrant from Somalia, and again, now you start to look at that Muslim threat, that you begin to lay down, and the same thing is happening now. That Muslim threat becomes one that now people consider that to be a black threat.
1: Well, I I kind of see that as Black Lives Matter and other black groups that are taking a more... Uh, you know, more, more faith-based groups that are being a little more, hey, we just need to organize, we need to talk about this, we need to talk to our legislators The Black Lives Matter, and we just need to take care of this We need thing. to take
2: care of this thing because, you know, we can talk all day long, but guess what? The next administration comes in and it's uh, we start all over talking about it, and as long as we're talking about it, we are not progressing.
1: You know, you shed some light well, on... Well, certainly... Yeah. Uh, sorry. I
0: was Certainly in 1919... The the it was it was startling to read a lot of the speeches that pe- people were giving, reading newspaper accounts, reading um, essays, reading letters. People were writing. I mean, this the, the it's all struck me as very contemporary because we really, um, I think again, I think in many ways we have progressed as a nation, certainly. Uh, but these core issues of who gets to be a full American and where and. Where do they get to live? Where how do they vote? When do they get to vote? Where do they? What kind of job opportunities do they have? What kind of uh, access to the, the this country's uh, plenty do they have? And those issues are, as you just pointed out, are roiling around today. And uh, these flashpoints, uh, I'm 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 actually kind of optimistic. I, I mean, I've been doing a lot of. Especially with the centennial, a lot of people have been contacting me. There's a lot of groups that are starting to do investigative work to set up monuments or have mo- uh, commemorations for these events that took place in 1919. Um, there's a marker now at Carswell Grove Baptist Church, which is the only one I know in the country that actually says the term "Red Summer" in it. Um, and you're starting to see people incorporate this into our understanding of American history, but it. You can't, um, you can't, well, I mean, the the broad point, which I'm sure you guys agree with, is if you don't understand race, you don't understand American history. Right. But if you, you know, it it, it gets more granular when you're, I mean, if if you don't understand, if you're a white person and you don't understand the African-American concerns about interaction with the police, then you really need to read about 1919 or you read, need, you know, and, and earlier, but those are long standing concerns, um, and, and and there's always, you know, people need to really work on those relationships because they have been so problematic for so long.
2: And, and two, what happens is that people who are not exposed to certain types of behavior, they basically don't want to believe it's happening. This is America. How could that be happening, you know, 10 minutes away from where I live. Well, gee, I got stopped by the police and they treated me kindly, you know, and you get those kind of statements. And when you hear them, you just kind of look at people and you almost want to laugh because it's like you don't seem to understand the dynamics of of race in this country.
1: Which is why we wanted to have you on the show today to talk about this book and this whole situation of Red Summer. I I can't tell you enough that this should be a read for everyone and folks out there if you don't have the book you can get it there's a lot of places to get it, but it's a, it's a fast read. It's a great read. You won't want to put it down. And it's informative, and it's not written like a history book. And, and Cameron, thank you for that. And, you know, it's not dates and history. You, you tell it in story form, and you move back and forth and give specific incidents. And then you talk about the New Negro, and then you talk about uh, the NAACP, and you talk about different kinds of things that are going on with Woodrow Wilson, which we didn't even get into, but that's, that's a whole other topic there. But thank that's you very much. my favorite president. He is or he isn't? He <laughs> <It> is not. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. He, he really scored yeah. some uh, bad points in uh, in 1919 with uh, not yeah, dealing with anything. So but th- yeah. I well, just want hey, really go ahead.
0: you guys so fun. I mean, it's great to talk to you
1: this this is, has really been a fun conversation and uh, maybe down the road let's uh, reconnect and uh, talk a little Careful. bit more about some other things and some other projects that you have going on but again i want to thank you on behalf of the show and really the station thank you for writing that book folks this is uh, we've been talking to Cameron McWorder who's the uh, Wall Street Journal's Atlanta bureau regional politician and news he covers those, those areas. He's previously written for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. The book is entitled Red Summer, the Summer of 1919 and the Awakening of Black America. Cameron, thank you very much for coming on In Tune today.
0: Thank you. Great talking to
2: you. Yeah, you thanks too. so much. We're gonna, I'm going to have to definitely go out and get this book. You is will. it on audiobook, Cameron? It is. Actually, it is. That's, I'm going to uh, order it up it's, today.
0: It's a much better job than I would ever do. <laughs> I,
1: I, I didn't <laughs> yeah, know if you were uh, reading it or not. Oh, no, no, he, he he kills it. But, he kills uh, it up. Very much. <laughs> Thank Thanks you, so much. Have a good weekend, Bye. Ellie. This book is—I can't tell you enough about what it does to put things in perspective. And and folks, if it's it's kind of coming out of the Civil War, as we've talked about in Reconstruction, 1875. Civil Rights Act, and then you've got the Plessy versus Ferguson, you get all the Jim Crow, you get the rise of the, the, the KKK, and you come into, the, into World War I, and you come out of that, In reading this book, it's just mind-boggling of what was going on at the time, and how we still have some of these same issues that have still not been resolved, and in some people's minds are just laser-focused.
2: Well, I'm glad that you brought this up. This is a great subject.